Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today's episode of the Psychology Podcast is brought to you by the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the nation, Blue Apron. Later in the show, I'm going to talk a little bit about my home cooking experience with Blue Apron, but you can try it yourself now and receive your first three meals for free along with free shipping. Just sign up at blueapron.com TPP. Again, that's three free meals including free shipping when you sign up through our exclusive discount website, blueapron.com TPP. And now I'm really excited to be speaking with my guest today, Alan Alda. Alan has earned international recognition as an actor, writer, and director. He has won seven Emmy Awards, has received three Tony nominations, is an inductee of the Television Hall of Fame, and was nominated for an Academy Award for his role in The Aviator. Alda played Hawkeye Pierce on the classic television series MASH, and his many films include Crimes and Misdemeanors, Everyone Says I Love You, Manhattan Murder Mystery, and Bridge of Spies. Alda is an active member of the science community, having hosted the award-winning series Scientific American Frontiers for 11 years, and founded the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. His latest book is called, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating. What an honor it is to have Alan Alda on the podcast today. Congrats on your new book. Thank you very much. It's very exciting. I enjoyed reading it very much. Well, I want to just jump in here and I want to start off by asking how you got into science communication. Well, it began because since I was so interested in science in general, I really leapt at the chance to do the series on public television called Scientific American Frontiers. 
And I realized while we were doing that, that we were doing it in a kind of unusual way. It was just a conversation between us. It wasn't a list of questions that I came in with. Because that list of questions, if you stick to a list of questions, you're not really listening to the answer and you're not probing the answer for more information or more understanding. But a conversation goes wherever it goes and the focus is on the contact between the two people and the information that comes out comes out as a function of that contact, which is a much more human way to get information, in my opinion, anyway. So I realized it might be possible to train scientists to communicate in that personal way. And we actually used improvisation exercises to do it. And I've seen it work. We've trained over over 8,000 scientists and doctors in the past almost eight years. And we've seen remarkable results. So it's, it's very exciting for me. At what point in your career, like when you made the transition from acting and all and getting all these acting awards into like being fascinated with science? Like, were you always fascinated with science, like as a kid? Oh, even as a kid, although okay. I never studied it in school. I did very badly in a, in a chemistry exam once. I never went beyond geometry and, and math, but it all interested me tremendously. When in my early 20s, that became pretty much all I read. I didn't read novels. My friends, I belong to a book club now that only reads novels so I can force myself to read novels. And the people in the club say, what do you have against novels? And I say, you can just tell they're making it up. <laughs> well, do you like science fiction? Not too much. <laughs> Not too much. Uh, you know, this idea of being able to transport your mind to the minds of others, you know, the research shows about reading fiction actually increases those capacities, I, right? Well, I know. Yeah. That's why I'm trying my damnedest. Yeah. So you have this quote in your book. You say, people are dying because we can't communicate in ways that allow us to understand one another. Can you elaborate on that? Like, how are people dying? Well, I think people are dying in a number of ways. It sounds like an exaggeration, I know. But I don't think it is. Uh, certainly, when one study showed that when patients rated their doctors as empathic, they were 19% more likely to follow their doctor's recommendations and to take their prescriptions and do the regimens and all of that. That sounds like that's a high number to me. It's a high percentage. And it sounds to me like that must certainly include people who are in danger of their lives by not following their doctor's advice. That's one way. Another way is people don't communicate and then they start shooting each other. That happens from the bedroom to the boardroom to the yeah. to the world table where the peace conferences are supposed to take place. Mm, that's a really good point. There's a deeper, richer, more inclusive way that people could be dying by virtue of a lack of good communication. We're getting more and more scientific breakthroughs because of collaboration. Collaboration is boosted so much by good communication. And if we're having less collaboration than we could have with better communication, some of that collaboration will be over pharmaceuticals or over other advances that will clean the water, clean the air, and all of that has an effect on mortality. So it's, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say lives can be saved. No, I agree. And you had this scary situation with a dentist, right? Yes. Where the communication really did matter. <laughs> it mattered an awful lot to my face. The dentist was poised to put the scalpel in my mouth and cut my gum because he had a, an invention of his, a procedure to 
get a blood supply to a socket of my front tooth. And he didn't explain what he was doing. He said, all he said was, now there will be some tethering. And I didn't know what tethering was. And I said, what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean tethering? His answer was really, really communicative. He said, tethering, tethering. He started screaming at me like I should know what he meant. It's a common, it's a very interesting example of a common word, not a piece of jargon, but a common word used in a special way can be totally excommunicating. Yeah. So he cut the freedom on my, uh, up here, you know, yeah. t- under your lip. And uh, I couldn't smile properly. And I had to make a movie where oh, my lip was right down like this, you know. I sneered instead of smiled. I told him that I had a problem with it, hoping he'd know what to do about it and be careful to warn other people. And instead of any kind of uh, empathic reaction, he sent me a letter protecting himself against a lawsuit. And I had no intention of suing him. I was just trying to help other people's lips. <laughs> he gave me a smilectomy and didn't seem to huh. care. And then he said there was like a second part. To, so did he fix it? A, yeah, he said <laughs> you there were was good. a second part to the operation. He said, I told you there was a second part. Well, I didn't remember that. And anyway, I'm not even sure if I went back to him because I, I was afraid. Maybe I did, but I, I don't think I have much of a freedom anymore. No, I don't see a freedom. No. Is that good or bad to not have much of a freedom anymore? Well, a freedom is uh, kind of important. It holds okay. your lip. Or I don't know. I think that's the main purpose to hold your lip up. Maybe it does other things. It's strange little tissue up there. You don't need one. You know, <laughs> if, if I had to get something removed, it'd be that. Well, <laughs> if I, I had to choose. I, I tell you, I notice when I see pictures of myself, if I don't concentrate on the smile, it comes out like this. Mm. So that's all right. It's okay. <laughs> Well, you know, that actually is an interesting transition. I was just thinking about, you know, how different can be cool. And you did some work with my colleague, Matt Lerner, on improvisation in children with autism. And, you know, a lot of them, you know, are treated as though they're socially awkward in their daily lives. But uh, what did you learn about communication from working with Matt? Well, I had a wonderful experience with him. I didn't work directly with him in any autistic population. But while we were talking, when I was interviewing him for the book, I mentioned that I had this sort of personal empathy workout that I had tried to develop for myself. Because the funny thing is, we almost all of us have this innate capacity for empathy, but it goes away rapidly if we don't practice it. That's the impression I get anyway. I'd be interested to know what your impression is, but you'll tell me in a second. So I was practicing Noticing people on the street and in restaurants or friends while we're talking and trying to figure out what they were feeling and naming the feeling. It seemed to me that naming the feeling would be important. Hmm. So he did. He said, I'd like to study this. So he did a, a research project and he sent people out with an app on their cell phones. He gave them a standardized empathy test at the beginning of the project, and then at the end of a week of their recording their interactions with people, he gave them another empathy test, and he was going to compare the two. One of the variables was uh, just observe them. Don't try to name their, their emotion. Just see what color their hair is. And then another one, another variable was don't do anything. Just tell us that you had an interaction that lasted more than five seconds. And the interesting thing is when he combined the two, what do you call them, two? Um, conditions. Yeah, yeah, conditions, that's conditions. Uh, Sorry. He combined the two conditions of 
trying to read their feelings and combine that with just noticing them, there was a really clear increase in their empathy in their ability at empathy by the end of the week, if they had done it a lot of times. There was a more noticeable difference the more times they did it. Right, dosage effect, right? Yes, yeah. a dosage effect, yeah. yeah. So now that's only one, one study and it's only with a, a limited population, but it seems to suggest that it's not a bad idea to notice people. So in workshops, when we have people role-playing, doing, trying to communicate to another person, if it's not going real well, we stop and we have them put their chairs back to back so they can't see each other. And then I ask them, what color is her hair? What color is her eyes? What color is what she's wearing? And like four out of five times, they don't know. They haven't been observing. When they turn back and start observing, the communication seems to change radically. Yeah. So this sounds to me like it puts us in more personal contact with the other person. Now, what I've noticed is when I do that, I think I hear my voice getting more personal, less like I'm speaking at somebody, but more communicating in an intimate way. And I think my face changes because I see changes in the other person as they sort of involuntarily respond to me. Well, how does that all sound to you? Does it sound cockeyed? It does sound a little... Co- no, no, it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to go. <laughs> Don't make any sense. No, um, yeah, no, it's great. It relates to so much stuff. So you, have you ever read Bruber's like I-Thou relationship? His ideas in I, the I end? I did a long time ago, yeah. yeah. It was a long time ago. But, you know, he has these beautiful stories in there about how, you know, in this one instance, he was interacting with a horse and he goes in completely just focusing on the horse and its own needs. And it's a beautiful moment. And then there's a split second, just a hair, where he starts to get self-conscious. Like he looks at his hand and sees it shaking a little bit. And he says at that split second, the entire magic broke. And the horse like suddenly ran away, you know, or got angry. But it was it's so interesting. Yeah. I, I had never tried talking to a horse. <laughs> no, me neither, me neither. But scaling up. <laughs> you remind me of those studies that show if the owner and his or her dog stares into each other's eyes for a while their yeah. oxytocin increases in both the dog and the owner. Oh, absolutely. So building up from the animal model to human models. <laughs> so as, as rapidly as possible. Yeah, as ra- yeah, let's switch to humans. I think that's an interesting case of a completely nonverbal, you know, but building up to other, you know, because we we're animals too, right? Building up to children with autism who can appear to have social deficits. But yeah, Matt has done this cool research with improv and showing that it's a matter of bias. It's a matter of attentional bias. There's so much wealth of information in the eyes. And if you're not paying attention to it, you know, you miss out on it. And so, yeah, this model is what you're talking about. So that's about, the yeah. same thing that I've been, I, you know, I might, I might have missed that in talking to him. But is he showing that in his studies with autistic people? Uh-huh. Yeah, but you do. You write about in your book a little bit about the work he's doing. Oh, I haven't read the book yet. <laughs> You know, there's a guy who actually said that, a basketball player. They said, somebody said, well, why did you say that in your book? He said, I haven't read that. <laughs> no, maybe, maybe I forgot that sentence. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no problem. No, you talk about uh, the improv. Because you, you put it in the context, you talk a lot about the importance of improv in lots of yeah. situations. Yeah. And yeah. But yeah. it does seem to be a real phenomenon that as you – Get in. I mean, what you said is very interesting that you get so much information through your eyes. You do, and not just the eyes. I'm building up here from horses to human eye contact to, 
you know, and then you look at other, you think about other cues, nonverbal cues. And if you're just simply not paying attention to those cues and you're being biased by your own internal drama and distractions yeah. and you're not mindful of it, then of course interactions are going to be awkward or not relatable. So yeah, it makes so much sense. It's so interesting to me to think about how when you go into a moment of communication with something that you are prepared to talk about, that sort of floods your consciousness. And I have to put it in personal terms. In the past, it was almost always true for me that if I was trying to sell somebody an idea or convince them that we should see one movie instead of another, you know, I would only be thinking about what I had in mind. And I wouldn't be noticing how it was landing on the other person where I might have missed openings that were perfect, you know, or just realize that it's a lost cause and do something more collaborative. When you're in like an acting situation, I'm just so fascinated to to hear what that's like. I imagine the best thing is to internalize the lines so much that you can be spontaneous. Even though it's scripted, isn't there still a great deal of spontaneity and nonverbal? communication going on? For my taste, to the extent that spontaneity is lacking, I'm not interested in the performance, whether it's my own or somebody else's. And the interesting thing is, here's how I would describe an ideal moment on the stage. I have a line coming up. I don't say that line because it's in the script. And I don't say it a certain way because I've decided that's how to say it. I say it because the other actor does something or says something that makes me say the line and that makes me say it in a certain way. And that can change from night to night, you know, in each performance. And that means I'm not responding to the words in the script. I'm responding to what's coming out of the other person as a person. So I have to be totally engaged with that person. I have to be observing them. And I don't have to be staring them in the eye to do it. They can be on the other side of the stage with their back to me, and I can be observing the way they're occupying space and what that means to me. But I got to be like a leaf in the wind responding in the subtlest way to the subtlest signals I'm getting from the other person. And that's where the spontaneity comes from. You can't decide to be spontaneous nearly as well as you can be spontaneous in reaction to another person. I love that. And, you know, there's this research showing that there's no low correlation between social knowledge and social spontaneity. So you can explain what that means. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely will. So they have these tests of like, what is the right thing to say in this situation? So if you want to make friends, if someone says, hi, how are you? You would score very high if you respond, I'm fine, thank you. And how are you? But actually, there are these tests of social creativity that say, come up with as many possible responses as you can to this certain situation. And some of the responses can be so creative, like, you know, I want to play with a friend, I would, you know, have an alien come from outer space and do a mind melt to, I don't know, you could be very, that would score very low in social knowledge, right? But it turns out that even though those two things are not related to each other, so you can score very high, you can know what to do, but not actually be socially skilled at all. You can know the right things to do, but not actually be socially skilled, or you can be socially skilled and not know the right answer. It turns out it's the, the spontaneity, the social creativity that predicts autistic symptoms. It's the social creativity that predicts actual social interactions. Like most of us don't want to be friends with someone who's just a robot, who just is like, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Most people don't want that in their social interactions. Yeah. 
that's something that I've independently found just through experience. And that's why when we teach communication, we strenuously avoid giving tips. Here's what, remember to do this when you're communicating. That would, whatever that is, that would be a tip. But it's an intellectualization. It's a mechanization of an encounter, which is dynamic. A real communication encounter is dynamic. It goes back and forth rapidly between two people. Even what you imagine the other person is thinking, if the person's not even there, if you're writing for a person, you're writing for a large audience, and you sort of can figure out roughly what the audience is, as you write for them, if you're thinking about, this is all my opinion, by the way, if you're thinking about how they're getting it sentence by sentence, I think you have a greater chance of being clear to them instead of just formulating in your mind the perfect way to say it, which is a good idea. You have to think about what you're going to say. But as you put it out, with each sentence, you're changing their brain in a certain way. You're making them expect something that's coming next. Fulfill that expectation. Carry on. Pick up where you left off and carry them through the thought because you're responsible for how they're understanding it. It's not their job to take your dense prose and decode it. If they have to go back in a sentence to figure out what the sentence is really about, it's not their failure. Yeah. That relates so much to the psychology of writing. Like, what can the writer do? There should be courses in creative writing programs that teach you theory of mind, I think. I I think think so, too. I think it's really, that's sort of the, it's the key, because what are you writing for? What's the real goal of writing? Is it just to leave your mark on a tree, regardless if anybody can understand it or not? Or is the goal to get something from inside my head to inside your head? That seems to me what communication is about. I mean, I guess if you leave your mark on a tree, you may not be trying to communicate. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're trying to do there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a lot of things potentially, but not communication. You know, I was thinking when I was reading your book about this research that comes out recently, I just, I'm trying to link some things that I see in my own field with what I was reading in your book. And there's an interesting study on how contagious the state of mind of inspiration is. Todd Thrash has done this research showing that People tend to like parts of stories better when, but they don't know this, but when the actual writer themselves was more inspired and feeling like an awe, state of awe, like some of these positive emotions while they were writing it, while they were writing it. Um, Oh, that's interesting. That's very interesting because that relates to a real experience I had. So it's hitting me in a special way. I was writing an episode of MASH and I was in my home in New Jersey at the time. And in the middle of the night, we heard a noise. Somebody had broken into the house, stolen the keys to the car. They drove away with the car and took a big television set. And it was frightening that people had been in the house. And at four o'clock in the morning, I couldn't sleep. So I worked on a scene for MASH, a very, very emotional scene where a soldier had died and the character Radar was writing a letter to the soldier's parents. That turned out to be an an especially effective scene because I was in such a state of agitation. I was, and I wasn't moved by the soldier's story. I was moved by having been burgled, but I was in a state of rapport with my own inspiration. 
and it turned the scene into one of the more affecting scenes of, uh, that we've ever shown. That's what came to mind. I'm wondering if it's an example of what you're talking about. How are these um, pieces of writing rated as being inspiration or deriving from inspiration? Well, there were poems, and people simply read various passages from the poems and just rated from a scale of 1 to 10 how inspired were they by the writing? What sort of feelings did they feel while they were reading it? And there's a whole list of positive emotions. Elation was one of them. You know, how much do you feel elated? What I want to make sure I understand in that story is, so are you saying that there was a burglar came and that inspired you? No, it's probably different from what you were describing. Somehow, I seem to be inspired to get into the minds of the people in the scene. I see. By the agitated position I was in emotionally. That makes but a lot of sense. Totally unrelated to the subject of the scene. It was just that I, my emotions were churned by having my house broken into. And that somehow that seemed to help me to write this very deeply emotional scene. Look, I have to say, you just proposed a new like theory that I want to test now. The idea there is that if you can induce a mood that is in line with what you're trying to get at in your writing, like if you can induce that mood in some way that you know is a good match to the content of the story, does the reader respond better to it? That's a great idea. And there's also this other weird thing about my experience, which was that the feeling I had of being violated by the burglar didn't have anything to do with the writing of the story in the script, right? Where the character's writing a letter to the parents of the dead kid. They're unrelated. So I wonder if, there, if it's interesting to explore, does any kind of emotional turbulence or emotional, uh, strong emotional affect, does that enable you to write any kind of emotional thing or, or affecting thing? Oh, that would be kind of interesting to know too. Yeah, it sounds like there's almost like emotional... Um... The complexity there, a mixing, a blending of things. And yeah. I, I wonder if it's that you open a channel, you get more yeah. vulnerable. Vulnerability seems to be really important to communication, to, as far as I can tell. When I come out on stage to talk to a, sometimes 2,000 people, never stand behind a podium. Yeah. I expose myself in a vulnerable way out in front of them. And I look them in the face. I don't have notes or anything. And that, I think that vulnerability has an effect on me and it has an effect on them. Yeah, I've started to uh, go completely naked in some of my talks. And I find, oh, great. I find it really leaves me uh, vulnerable, but I feel like I can handle any... No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> you bring your notes out and hold them in front of you at least. Yeah, well, yeah, I've started having to do that because I would get arrested. I want to ask out of concern, though, for a second, are you, like, the burglar situation, were you okay? Like, was it actually oh, a burglar? Thank like, you. Yeah, happened? well, we never came in contact with him. We were oh my gosh. asleep while it happened, which made us feel even more vulnerable. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, I'm very sorry to hear about that. I mean, that, I didn't want to, like, gloss over that. That sounds horrible. Well, thank you. So I want to be respectful of your time here, just, I guess, just a couple more minutes, because I know you have to go soon. Let's just talk about this idea, which I think kind of ties together so much of your book. I'm quickly in my head. You see what I'm doing? I'm trying to say, well, can I ask a grand question that can get in <laughs> seven, seven questions in one here, right? Okay, here's, yeah. here's one that'll get in seven at one. The improvisation of daily life, that notion 
right? Whether it's like you said, the boardroom or the workplace or being a medical doctor, et cetera, et cetera. Or um, personal relations, just, just everyday right. personal relations. Right. So what has your wealth of experience in science communication as well as theater and acting taught you about, you know, any tips for anyone on how to, uh, you know, kind of treat your life as a social improv? Well, the funny thing is that working on this book for the last couple of years has changed me a little bit, maybe a lot. I'm much more tuned into other people and I'm much more able to find out what's under the surface or to, to sort of figure out what's under the surface. And the amazing thing is I find people less annoying. They, <laughs> they, you know, a sharp tone from somebody or forgetting something or being slightly rude. And I think, what's that coming from? I think I see clues on their face or in their voice about where it's coming from. And that little spurt of empathy probably puts me in a position that I think some studies have shown that with more empathy, you have more patience. And I don't know why that is exactly, but knowing the source of behavior may dilute some of the uh, response you have to it in a defensive way or an aggressive way. You know, when a baby is crying, you could say, I can't stand that noise. Or you can say, is the baby hungry? Is, what's What's going on there? And then that if you have any response to babies at all, I think it diminishes your annoyance at the sound of the cry. But I find it easier to relate to people. And one big point that it would be fun to get into is that empathy, I don't think, makes you a good person mm-hmm. automatically. The definition I like of empathy is that it's just being aware of what the other person is feeling. It doesn't mean that you have compassion for the person. It might give you more patience, but that doesn't mean that you're not sinking into the quicksand of the emotion that you're feeling. I mean, the notion about empathy apparently accepted by most people is that, and you can check me out on this, is that I'm aware of what you're feeling because I experienced that feeling myself. And the trick is not to drown in that feeling, but to control it. Because I think empathy is just a tool. And while it doesn't automatically make you a good person, because bullies use empathy really well, they, I think they have plenty oh, yeah. of, right? Torturers use empathy. Interrogators. Taking your feelings and putting you in a position where you feel helpless. They deliberately do that. So they're monitoring your feelings. So that doesn't make you a good person, but it's a terrific tool if you want to do something positive with another person, like communicate. Oh, wow. Thank you for bringing up the most interesting topic in the last two seconds, because I, I, I could talk to you all day about this. It's such a cool topic. So, yeah, like the difference between cognitive empathy and effective empathy. Yeah. You know, that like psychopaths are really good at cognitive empathy, but they don't actually value. It's a value system as well. They don't value emotions. So they, in others, or it turns out even in themselves as well. So they don't listen to their own emotional information as much, you know, but effective empathy, actually feeling what other people feel. And then that's different than compassion, like you said, which is actually a feeling of love. Like you want to reduce someone's suffering. So when someone is in pain, you know, a lot of people have empathy burnout because effective empathy burnout that are in the helping professions because they're, right. they're I think, feeling. I think yeah. empathy gives you a position from which you can make a decision about your actions. Yes. Assuming you're not psychopathic, where you're going to make the decision regardless of what they're feeling. 
if you yeah. want to do something positive, something compassionate, the empathy can help you do it. Absolutely. I love that way of framing it. So empathy and even the emotional empathy gives you that information to then reflect on. But then maybe compassion is this more higher level thing where, you know, some of these people like these Buddhists, like Matthew Ricard, who practices loving, he's considered the happest man alive. If you Google that. If you, <laughs> how, how does he know? <laughs> if you Google, have you heard of Matthew Ricard? Like no. other people call him that other people because they oh, scan oh. his brain and they find it's, oh, oh, great. Uh, it approximates, you know, everything, all the happy correlated brain areas. But he says that when he sees someone suffering, he doesn't feel like what they're feeling. He feels just a, a warm sense of love, of wanting to help. So maybe the empathy is like having that information, but then the compassion is actually the action of being able to really help and not be hindered by your overwhelming emotions of what they're feeling, if that makes sense. Right. I, yeah. I have a sort of a thought experiment in the book that kind of deals with exactly what you're talking about. It's after midnight. A man's wife is already asleep and he passes the kitchen sink and he sees it's full of dishes and he thinks... I ought to do something about that, I guess. And maybe he does something about it, and maybe he doesn't. But the chances of his doing something about cleaning up the dishes probably, on my mind, lower, unless he has a little glimmer of empathy and thinks, what will she feel when she sees this tomorrow morning? Yeah. And he has already the impulse to do something but maybe that little glimmer of empathy can help kick him over into making the decision to actually do it. Well, that advice just helped millions of my psychology podcast listeners help them in the bedroom. <laughs> so, Not only that, you. this man yeah. finds out that doing the dishes is foreplay. Oh, right. <laughs> foreplay uh, for doing like more complex uh, things like washing like the stove. Or, or foreplay for sexual. No, foreplay for when he goes into the next room. <laughs> I know. I'm just, I'm just being wacky. <laughs> Look, I want to thank you uh, so much for being so gracious to chat and come on the podcast today. You know, as someone who deeply respects public science communication, thanks for the amazing work you've done for our field. It has certainly not gone unnoticed, and it's been thank much appreciated. I appreciate that very much. It's really fun talking with you. Fun talking to you, too. All the best to you and with the book. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 